0: If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, we are looking at a series, um, the parables in Matthew, which are of Jesus in short parables depicting aspects, facets of his kingdom, of what he anticipated and predicted and uh, promised, really, for his kingdom rule. And it has enormous implications for us as a church plant because churches are planted as almost like... Um, like putting a flag in the ground for reclaiming ground for Jesus. I don't mean in, in a militaristic way; that that's militaristic language. But in the sense that Christianity was always designed to be an expanding faith. It was um, Jesus. Jesus gave his disciples a commission to go into all the world and to tell people about him and to to help people know what it means to follow him. And ever since then churches have been starting, and that's pretty much, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's, let's look at what this passage is about. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you Matthew 13, verse 31 to 33, two very short parables, basically the same ideas coming through in them both. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let me begin by just asking you a question, just to tee up what we're going to think about today, which is this. Why, why do people um, move to London. Obviously, it's felt like, in recent years, the world has moved to London. There's, uh, the population is increasing. They anticipate that it's going to increase, um, to 10 million by, I think, 2030. And most of that is, um, it's just people, there's just a lot of people coming to London. Um, you see an enormous influx. And, uh, a lot of pressure on housing, that's why we all pay a lot of money to live here, why it's expensive. So, why do people want to be here? You could say it has something to do with the, the cultural heritage, um, the life, the vibrancy of a place like this. Um, they say, don't they, if, when you're tired of London, you're tired of life. And um, because life is here, um, you get the full gamut of life experiences and of people and of all that going on in a city like this. It can be for learning. I know some of you are at university or some of you were at university or at colleges here or whatever. Um, but if you were to ask me, why, what is it that drives people to this city um, as one of the top leading world cities? I think it's captured um, by the word ambition. I know it's not universally true, but I think it's fair to say that an enormous amount of what drives this city is ambition in the sense that if you want to be a leader in your, in your field, you need to be here. If you want to be um, a, a world-class doctor, you want to work in a London hospital. If you want to be a world-class banker, um, you generally don't, don't go and live in somewhere like Gloucester or Derbyshire or somewhere like that. You come to London. You come here. And there's something also about being in a city like this, which instantly raises the bar. So we know what ambition feels like, we know what it looks like, and although I know, I don't want to be generalized too much, all of us, to some extent, um, have felt something of the drive of of London life, haven't we? Now, the reason I I put it in that way is that when, in this parable, we get an insight into, into the ambitions of Jesus Christ... I could I know that word might strike you as an odd word to use for Jesus and in one sense it is but let me let me just uh, put it to you in, in a couple of different ways negatively when you read the gospels and you read about Jesus he has an enormous ambition to put evil to death to deal with it doesn't he you remember towards the end of his ministry how he wept over jerusalem And says, how I would have gathered you like like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Much as Leslie was praying, that there was this, this desire to root out evil and to deal with it. This is why he wept when his friend Lazarus died. He, being God the Son in human flesh, was born into a world rife with evil. And it must have grieved him more deeply than any of us could imagine given that he didn't have a sinful nature. So he had an ambition to deal with it, to stamp on it, and that's what we believe he did at the cross. At least it was the beginning of a ripple effect that would affect the world in the coming centuries to the end. To put it more positively though, Christ has an ambition to rule and reign over the nations. Now I know that that To say that about anybody else would be to describe some kind of megalomaniac um, crazy person, wouldn't it? We've known, we've read our history books, we've known uh, people today who are on the news who have these kinds of ambitions and they strike terror and fear into people's hearts because it's all about them and there's something very wicked about that. But somehow, in the context of the life and the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus, we know that his ambition has a different flavour to it. But it's still ambition, or perhaps a better word would be, it's prediction. So when we're reading these parables, where Jesus is describing his ambitions for his kingdom, this isn't just a pipe dream, a kind of wistful hope. This is prediction of what would happen, and it has enormous relevance, therefore, to us at this time, in britain a country so assailed by secularism by the kind of dissolving of of real faith uh, what was taken for granted in previous centuries not always by the way it's come in ebbs and flows throughout if you read the history books but we know that we live in some ways at a low water mark don't we in terms of what faith is in this nation and it's times like this that we need to read these parables more than ever. So let's think about what it is that Jesus is, has ambition for. And it's three things, I think Am- ambition for growth, for power, and influence. And I want to explain all of these things to you, beginning them with this idea of ambition for growth. Two pictures that probably don't resonate that deeply with us. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a farmer. And I'm not a baker either. So um, the pictures that Jesus uses, he takes from day-to-day life of the people that he's talking to. And he's using also exaggeration here. Mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed. It didn't become the biggest tree. But he wanted to very much get the picture in your brain. If you've ever had French mustard, the little black bits or little brown bits inside, that is a mustard seed, just so that you're very clear on what we're talking about here. When he uses a picture about the, the leaven, we're talking there about yeast. So I, I had to read about this. I don't, I've, I've baked a little bit of bread, but it was in a bread maker, so that's kind of cheating. It's a different kind of way of doing things. But apparently, if you want to um, bake bread every day, as you might have done in a, in a society like this, you would, I'm talking about first century society, you might have a starter, a sourdough starter, which is a little bit of bread with the active yeast inside it, leavened bread. And every day... You, you take your starter, which you need to keep alive with adding water and flour, and you mix it in with all your fresh ground flour. You're, and uh, it begins to permeate the batch and grow and grow and multiply and multiply. And then you just take a piece off before you chuck it in the oven. You bake the rest and then you've got your piece for tomorrow, which is going to do the job again. And it's constant. Some people nurture their, their starters for years and years and years. Now this is the images that he's using, the mustard seed, the sourdough starter, and, and by the way, when he talks here about the, the amount of bread that's baked, it's about 27 kilograms of flour here, so 27 bags of flour. It's enough to feed 100 people or a small village. So at the, ver- the very least, what we need to understand by what Jesus is saying here, the big principle, the big idea is that something small becomes something enormous, A small pinch of yesterday's dough put into 27 kilograms of flour the whole thing is going to be leavened before long the same with the mustard seed to the full-grown plant now i know that this is a stretch for us given that we're not we're not farmers we're not necessarily bakers um apart from our little famous baker here who's she can tell you all about it if you want to check out her website and whatnot um just embarrass her um she's world-acclaimed, recognized cook in the room. Um, but t- maybe if Jesus was preaching today, what analogy might he use? Uh, thir- 13 days ago, I think it was, a-, a pastor that I've met, a man called Donnie Griggs, was on the beach with some, some friends uh, in North Carolina. It's- they're in an area where it's all about the sea, and they were down at the beach having a barbecue with a men's retreat, and... Uh, something crazy happened. It's very rare to see this, but um, dozens, perhaps even hundreds of sharks came right up to the water's edge and were engaged in this feeding frenzy. And they caught this on camera. There must have been a shawl of fish there. These sharks were going crazy. He put this video online and uh, 13 days later, two weeks later, there are five and a half million views of that video because it went viral. It was on the front page of the Telegraph website, it was apparently on the Daily Mail, and uh, pe- it went crazy on Twitter and everything. I saw it um, accidentally on the Telegraph, although another pastor friend of mine had tweeted about it. And uh, that, that's the image that we got here. That somehow, something that happens in an obscure corner of the world like North Carolina, what happens in North Carolina? None of us know. But overnight, it becomes a global sensation. And maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but it's true in some cases. Perhaps in Irina's case with her website, I'm just going to embarrass you a little bit more. Or, or else, her American equivalent, Justin Bieber, the guy who, who began in his, in his bedroom uh, singing, singing songs to the camera, and he is now worldwide, he's known everywhere, isn't he? That's the kind of image that Jesus is using here when he talks about mustard seed, he talks about leaven. He's saying that this thing is going to go viral, it's going to explode. Now, the thing about these kinds of predictions is that they always seem reasonable with hindsight, don't they? It's easy for anyone to say um, about a talented person who's gained world fame or about um, a movement like that of Jesus that, of course, it was going to happen. But actually, everything was stacked against Jesus, Let me tell you why. Number one, there were lots of guys walking around calling themselves the Messiah at the time. I don't know if you realize this, but it was a kind of a thing that people did. If they felt like, you know, they felt this divine unction and they knew that they were going to be the deliverer, guys would self-profess themselves as messiahs and go around and gather following. And Jesus was therefore one among many who made that kind of a claim. The second thing we can say about him is that actually he wasn't that impressive in a physical sense. How do I know that? Because in Isaiah 53, he says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. I take that as a literal prophetic word about Christ because you read the rest of the chapter and it's like describing his life, even though it was written 700 plus years before him. So we're talking here about a guy who... for all intents and uh, purposes, may never have gained world fame, it would seem. And just to add one more factor here, he had very few followers. At times he had crowds of thousands, but you, you get to the end of Jesus' life, and by and large people have abandoned him. Most people have thought, I don't want to be associated with this guy, he's offensive, he tells us things we don't want to hear and he's, he's out of favor with the Romans and ultimately he's dead. That's what people thought. So they abandoned him. How then did Jesus know that this thing was going to explode? Remember, you cannot predict when something is going to go viral online. How did Jesus know that this thing was going to be like a mustard seed, was going to be like the leaven, was going to explode? And I think there are, there, there are a couple of answers to that. The first is that he knew God. By the way, when I say there are answers to this, I mean, I don't mean, you know, you could answer, well, he's the son of God, of course he knew. But there's a sense in which Jesus, by taking upon him flesh, self-limited himself within the confines of his humanity so that he didn't know everything. He had to walk by the same power of the Holy Spirit that you and I do. He didn't have universal knowledge as the Son of God. He was Jesus Christ, the man from, from Galilee. So how did he know? What, what gave him this absolute confidence that the thing he was doing would shake the world? And I think it's firstly that he knew his Father. Jesus grew up reading the same scriptures, reading the Old Testament, and in it he discovered the patterns of God's working. So that he would have started in Genesis 1, the, the, uh, the account of creation, then he would have got to Genesis 3. And in there, there's a story about the fall of Adam and Eve and about God's, God's blessing and, and, sorry, God's curse upon them. And it's got a predictive element to it because he says to the snake that there will be this enmity between... The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake, and that there's going to be this, this conflict between them. And, and God uses this word seed. Now we jump forward hundreds of years to the life of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, and we find the exact same word is picked up again when God promises Abraham, this guy who is as good as dead, by the way, that he's going to have descendants. And he uses the same word, seed. And he says exactly this. It's in, uh, uh, let me just get the passage right. Genesis 12 and verse 7. He says, To your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. Now that promise made absolutely no sense. Abraham was... He got, a little bit later, this is when he was about 80 years old, he, came, he got to age 100 before he had a child. And you can think, this guy is way beyond the age when you can, you can even make love to your wife. He can't do it physically. And his wife is past menstruation. She has gone through the menopause. These guys are, are barren. They are dried up. So to hear a promise like this makes absolutely no sense, but Jesus read it then he read the rest of the story and he sees the pattern of God God says it and it comes to pass so that Abraham one man he has his son Isaac Isaac has Jacob Jacob has 12 sons the 12 sons become millions by the time they're in, by the end of their captivity in Egypt those millions become a conquering people who walk into Canaan and then centuries later Jesus is 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 one of their descendants so he sees the pattern of the faithfulness of God in history, and he knows that when God says something, it's as good as done. But then you add to that a second factor, which is that Jesus knew what God had promised him personally. Do you remember how, when he's baptized, right at the beginning of his ministry, and he's dunked under the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and then he comes up out of the water, it says that a dove descended upon him And the voice comes out of the clouds and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. That is language that is pulled straight out of the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 2, where God says, it's it's describing a kind of conversation between God the Father and His Son, and it says this, The Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." So Jesus read these passages and he knew the promise was about him. Now this carries enormous significance for us. Because it's easy to look at what we are doing, starting a church in a corner of London where we have few resources and at the moment few people, but an anticipation that God is going to do something and we could easily doubt For the same reasons that Jesus' followers might have doubted what he's saying in the parable, that we don't have the benefit of hindsight. Oh, I'd love to look forward 10, 20, 50 years and see what God is going to do with this beginning. But I can't do that. So what do I do instead? We do what Jesus did. Remember, limited as he was to a human body, a human mind, living by the power of the Spirit, what did he do? He read his Bible and he discovered the character of God And he found out that God is faithful to his promises. And we have to do the exact same thing. Jesus lived by faith. And I'm not talking about faith which is a blind punt in the dark. That's the way that atheists like to talk about faith. And I don't think that we should allow atheists to define faith for us. Faith, on the Bible terms, is believing God. Trusting his character, reading about him in the scriptures and saying if God is like that and if God does not change, we know and can predict what God will do to an extent. We live by the same faith that Jesus did, which means we can take the promises even of this parable that we're looking at, these two parables we're looking at today, and know that this is talking about us. This is talking in predictive way about what God is going to do through us because we've seen him, God working in this way over the centuries in his body across the entire world. What has God said? He said the seed will become a tree that the small amount of leaven is going to leaven the batch of dough, the enormous batch of dough and God will do it. It's going to grow, in other words. Jesus has this ambition for growth and I think that you and I ought to share it because it's about Christ's glory. Secondly, he has an ambition for power. Let me ask you, what do you think the birds represent in the parable here? It says that when the tree is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What are the birds and what do they mean? I think there are two answers to that that we can justify from the Bible. That have, there's an answer that's kind of at the macro level and there's an answer that's at the, the, the ma- micro level. And I want to just unpack them both for you. Starting with the, the macro level answer to what this means. And I, I, I really confidently think this has significance and I'll tell you why. If you're familiar with, um, at all with computer games, back in, actually I don't even know what decade it was, but when the Atari was developed, the, the creator of the Atari and the early programmers began putting into it little hidden um, secrets that some, that some people would eventually discover that weren't really part of the game, but which were, if you found them, a little treat. And uh, they, they call them Easter eggs. Easter eggs. And it's basically an inside joke that when some a creative person can put something inside his work of art, and uh, if you find it, it's kind of an inside joke for those who who, who find it. So Alfred Hitchcock apparently always used to have a, a walk-on part in his own films. And that's like the way that this phrase Easter egg is, is used. And the Bible is full of Easter eggs because we have a God who created it, but he also he, he put within it things that you can discover, connections between the pages of the scriptures, which when you see them, shed enormous light on on the meaning of what you're reading. The birds are one of those. Do you know that the picture of a tree with the birds in it is is from the book of Daniel, when God is speaking to, of all people, a, a Babylonian emperor called Nebuchadnezzar, a very evil man by all accounts, But God, in his sovereignty, decided to make this man great because he had a purpose to work out through Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel 4, you can read about a picture Nebuchadnezzar had of his empire being like a tree with the birds, which represent his subject nations sitting in the branches. So when Jesus is pulling up this picture, don't tell me that he doesn't know what resonance that has with anybody who who knows their Bible, as he did, as his hearers did, inside out. What does it mean? It means this, that Jesus, when he's telling this parable and announcing his kingdom, is not just talking about privatized personal faith and spirituality. I know that evangelical Christians, we we do talk about the gospel in terms of in terms of one person's reception of the message and then their their personal relationship with Jesus. Now that is not unimportant, it's not irrelevant, but it's not the whole picture either. If you were were, uh, growing up in New Testament times, you could not have thought just in terms of individuals because you thought naturally in terms of nations, in terms of your people, in terms of your clan, your tribe, your family. When Jesus made the promises of his gospel to go into all the world, he wasn't just thinking about select individuals pulled from all the nations of the world. He was thinking about the nations themselves coming and finding shelter in the branches of his kingdom. In other words, he had, he had if you can put it this way, imperialistic ambition for his kingdom. And this has enormous implications the word gospel itself tells us this because it's a Greek word, evangelion, which was, was used whenever an emperor had a child that would be the successor to his throne. When that child was born, messengers would run throughout the empire announcing evangelion, announcing a good news. The same would happen when the emperor died and a new emperor acceded to the throne these messengers would run throughout the world announcing an evangelion. Now what happens when Paul, Peter and the other apostles on Jesus' authority begin running through the empire announcing an evangelion? Can you see that that is a deeply subversive way of saying we're announcing the true good news, the good news of a new emperor who has taken his place on a throne. The implications of this are astounding because what it has to say is that God is not just about a mission of rescuing people from a world, pulling them out as it were, pulling them into the air, pulling them into heaven and then allowing the world just to burn. But rather, the Bible tells a completely different story of what God is about. That in saving the world, we can think about the language um, that we looked at last week in Colossians 1. That in, in Christ dying for sin, destroying death, and um, defeating the evil one on the cross, that he, he, he affected the beginning of something that has this kind of cosmic shock waves. That it's not just about individuals being saved from the world, but it's about the world being saved. So in Colossians 1, it said that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, I know that you may not be able to make the connections immediately because this is not something we talk about enough. But let me just try and spell it out for you. What does this mean? When we get to the end of Revelation at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it, it talks about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God. In Revelation 21, there's this image, um, in verse 6, there's this image of the kings bringing their treasures into the kingdom. It says, if I can just get the right verse, because 21 verse 26, it says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is language that's picked up from the book of Isaiah, where it depicts all the enemy kings surrounding Israel, bringing their treasures to Jerusalem, their camels, their ships, bringing all the best products and produce of their, of their kingdoms into Jerusalem to become the possession of God's kingdom. What does it mean? It means essentially that all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be Christ's kingdoms. And that all the best things that they have produced in history are going to belong to Christ and going to, and, and going to bring glory to him. So somehow, America is going to come one day to Christ and say, look what we made. We made, we, we, we made the internet. Debatable, maybe it was British, I'm not sure. But they're going to bring it to Christ and say, look, this is, this is now yours. They're going to bring Hollywood to Jesus. A very mixed thing, but somehow it's going to be re- re- redeemed in Christ. That Britain, with all its history, is going to bring everything that it's th- that it's done to Christ. That French is going to bring France is going to bring their croissants and their baguettes to Jesus, and they're going to be part of the kingdom. This is the idea that you get from Revelation. I know I'm kind of making fun in one sense, but I, I think there's something real and true about this. That God didn't just start us on the journey of of inhabiting the planet, of 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 making culture, of making art and beauty and of order, for it all just to burn away. Because Christ reconciled in himself all things. The birds come and take refuge in his branches. The kingdoms become his, which means that he is not going to just trash the whole thing, he's going to redeem it all. Which has enormous implications for how we love a city like London. We have to come at it full force with the gospel that confronts the demonic and dark ways of thinking that are anti-Christ and anti-God. But we also want to say, London, we we love this city. There's so much about the city that we love, which we know Christ can capture and redeem and pull up and pull into his kingdom. That's the macro level. The micro level, of course, is, is the level of the individual. The birds in the branches are you and me. That we have refuge in Christ. Do you know that the picture of God as a refuge, the picture that came across so wonderfully in the way Leslie was praying earlier, is something that resonates time and time again in the Bible. Psalm 46 is one of the most famous places. God is, we sing it, don't we? God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not not fear that the earth, earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, that the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge and strength. Over in Psalm 107, we see this same idea coming through. The psalm is picking up on on the heart cry of people who, who in life have sought to find satisfaction in 101 different different ways. But and one of the ways that people try to find a, they try to find a home. They try they wander about trying to find a home. And he says in. Verse 4, that some wandered. They wandered in desert wastes. They were lost. They, they'd been looking around for this place called home, in other words. And they were lost, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way, till they reached a city to dwell in. I think that the picture is portrayed in different ways, but the idea is that without Christ, we are, we're like birds with no home. We need a place where we can have our nest, where we can find refuge, where we can find safety. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, I welcome you all in. Have you, have you come home? Do you know what it is to wander through life and, and wonder, is this it? Is this all there is? And where is home? And what does it feel like to have finally arrived home? My friends, to be in Christ, to be in his kingdom, is to, is to truly come home, to find your place in, in his branches. So Christ has ambition for growth, he has ambition for power, but it's the power that redeems, the power that, that whereby the nations and the individuals in those nations find, find refuge in his branches. And the final thing, he has ambition for influence. What does leaven do when you put it in the dough, when you put it in the flour? It begins a chemical process that makes your bread taste awesome. As it begins to metabolize the sugars, gases um, are are produced that create all the air bubbles within the loaf, and alcohol is also produced, which is what gives the bread that amazing smell. If it's not well fermented, it it doesn't smell like that. That's what gives it that amazing aroma, so that when you walk past a bakery, you're smelling the fermentation of the dough. It does something beautiful to the flour. I'm really starting to feel hungry right about now. And I think the point of what Jesus says here, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it all was leavened. What he's saying is that it has a massively disproportionate influence on the flour that it's placed inside. So you just put this tiny bit of of, of dough inside that's leavened and suddenly the whole thing begins to change in its chemical composition. I think that there are three things that that it says about the kingdom, about the kingdom as leaven. Something about its hiddenness, something about its generosity, and something about its influence. Let me explain. Firstly, about its hiddenness. The kingdom of Christ began in the most obscure part of the world, didn't it? Nazareth, where Jesus is born, is I've been there, it's the tiny, it's the back of nowhere. It's no wonder that when Jesus, even when he goes up to Jerusalem, which by wasn't a particularly impressive place in itself, but the Jerusalemites begin to scoff that he's from Nazareth. Imagine what had happened if he'd gone to Rome. This is the back of nowhere a kingdom that's just been trampled by other nations over the years, a people who've been exiled and returned and exiled and returned and who've, who've really not governed themselves properly for centuries, that's where the kingdom begins in the most unlikely context, in hiddenness and in obscurity. But that's not to do away with its power and influence. Now, the Bible, the Bible respects small things. The Bible respects individuals. You ever wondered why the Bible tells us so many stories and so many details about individuals and names that you really don't care about when you're reading books like Chronicles and you've got name after name, but at the very least it tells us that God takes note of the individual. And then we read the stories of men who changed nations because they were just one man, but God loves to work through the individual. How God created the the world with just two words, if he was speaking Hebrew, of course, though we don't really know what language he was speaking. But in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, just two words, yehi or, let there be light. And there was light. God created the universe with two words, small things, enormous consequences. The fact that the leaven is hidden in the flower ought not to diminish our respect for what the kingdom of God would accomplish. That's what Jesus was saying. And so I know that today we hear all kinds of naysayers who, who want to predict the death of the church, the death of religion, the death of God even. But fair enough, in the Western world there has been a slide away in France, real Christianity is, is all but nothing. They're, even though some of the greatest Christians in history came from that country. I think about somebody like John Calvin, a Frenchman. Makes me, wanna, makes me love France just a little bit more. But you think about what's happened. They've lost that heritage. I admit the Western world has been decimated. But, but, do you know that in China their predictions, when you look at the rate that the church of Christ is growing, a hidden church, just like the leaven in the, in the batch of, of flour, the predictions are that in 20 years' time, 20 years' time, all of us in this room, apart from Noah, are over 20. So we're talking about less than our lifetimes. They're predicting that a third of China will be Christian just on the current growth rates, just on the, the way this thing is spreading. It's leavening that nation. It's hidden. It's not in the, in the news. The government is trying to get rid of it, but there's nothing you can do because once the leaven starts its work, it's an irreversible process. Africa, 100 years ago, it was estimated that 10% of Africans would call themselves Christian. 100 years on, it's 54%. That's more than half of a continent. Now, I know that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is one. Not everyone understands the gospel. And all these statistics have to be taken with a pinch of salt. But the trend is obvious, isn't it? There are cities in South America that have been enjoying revival for decades now. So I don't look at London, I don't look at Britain and think, oh, man, we have lost it. What's the point in starting a church? What's the point? No, the gospel's just just in hiding. You watch what happens. It may be in our lifetime, it may be after we're six feet under, but the the leaven can't be stopped. You can't really stamp this thing out because once the message gets out, the power is in it. Our job is just to make sure we keep it and transmit it and keep it faithful. So there's something about the hiddenness of the leaven that's important and resonates with us. Look at us. We're in a little room with zodiac symbols on the ceiling, in on a strange street in the middle of London, and few people know that we're here. It doesn't really matter. God has a plan and a purpose. We're like leaven. We're gonna leaven this city. We're gonna leaven your colleges, your places of work, your families. We're gonna do it because we have the gospel. There's something also about the generosity that's implied by this, this picture of leaven. Let me tell you what I mean by that. that. Not everybody wants to be a part of this kingdom, do they? Not everybody looks at Jesus and looks at the church and says, man, what you've got, that's what I need. Let me, let me be a part of it. Let me come and find shelter in the branches of that tree. They don't think that way. In fact, there's a lot of people who hate what we are, hate what we do, hate what we stand for, hate what we preach for all kinds of reasons. But the picture of the leaven tells us that the influence that the leaven has is outside of itself. It begins to influence. It begins to seep in to the dough, as it were. It begins to do things. And that, that is just the overflow of the goodness of what it's doing. It, it doesn't matter whether you want this or not. The picture is the kingdom of God is going to bless you anyway. Now this is is a promise, again, just to go all the way back to Abraham. It all starts, by the way, in Genesis. You can't ignore this. This is when the church began. This is when God um, first started giving these promises about his kingdom. But in Genesis 12, the first time that God speaks to Abraham and tells him that he's going to make him the father of many nations, the language is so important there because he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Can you see how it's a two-way thing? God says, I'm going to multiply you so that you can bless the world. The world might not want what you have to offer, but you're going to bless it anyway. That's the picture of how the church works and how it begins to leaven cities and leaven nations. It doesn't even matter if they don't want what we have to offer. We're going to bless you anyway. That's something about the generosity that's being talked about here. Jesus talked about it in terms of us being like salt. A good thing by all accounts. Salt preserves the meat. It blesses the meat so that the meat doesn't go rotten. And Jesus is saying, my church, like salt, is going to bless the places where I put it. It's going to leaven the batch. And this, of course, is what we see when we look at the history of the church. I know that there have been dark patches. Usually when people have forgotten the gospel. But whenever the word of God is held up, Whenever people come back to Christ and there's a purity in his church, the church begins to just bless the nations in which it's placed. After Constantine, the, uh, the, the emperor who converted and, and drew the whole Roman Empire into Christianity, there was another emperor called Julian, who was called Julian the Apostate, because he tried to reverse this trend. He tried to turn the entire empire away from Christianity, but of course he failed. But there's one of his writings recorded in which he he describes the problem in this way. He says, the impious Galileans, that's just a nickname for Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. You can feel his indignation. So how dare they? They don't only take care of the other Christians, they're taking care of our uh, pagans as well. And he says, all men see that our people lack aid from us. We're failing, they're succeeding and we're trying to stamp them out. The kindness of the Christians was such that the gospel began to spread because they were the guys who stayed in cities like Rome when the plague spread. The Christians would nurse victims of the plague. They would take in babies abandoned on hillsides because if you didn't abort a child, what do you do? You just leave them there to die and be eaten by wolves, and the Christians would take them in. Now you don't have to go back far in this nation's history to know that if it were not for the work of Christians, you wouldn't have hospitals and schools and labour laws and trade unions and all the things that have sought to leaven the nation. It's Christians who did these things. And I know that in our humanistic age, these things have been taken up by the secular forces of government and whatever. But I know also with equal confidence that they don't have... The force of belief, of philosophy to sustain these things inevitably because they don't have the gospel. But when you have Christ, when you have the message of his kindness, of his generosity to us, you have more than enough fuel to change the world. This is how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Generous Justice. where he's talking about the the mandate that that lies on Christians in view of the gospel to bless the world in which we're placed. And he says this, to the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You'll see their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is a filthy rag, but in Christ we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you. And you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess. Since God came to earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighbourhood, as it were, and helped you. Even though your your spiritual problems were your own fault. He's talking about the fact that Christ's generosity to us is what makes the church... Generous to people who don't even necessarily want it. And look, there's something else here. There's the hiddenness, the generosity. But this influence is... is There's also this enormous influence that the leaven has. And here's what I mean. That ultimately, the leaven, it changes the chemical composition of the dough, as I've been saying. It, It changes what's in there. And so we see this pattern that the kingdom begins to actually change the expression in the face of of countries and of cities and of neighbourhoods. It has an influence beyond itself. You look at Joseph in the Old Testament, this guy who in many ways is a picture of Christ because his life in some respects parallels that of Christ. He's one man who really was as good as dead. he sold into slavery. He's then imprisoned. But God lifts him up and places him in a position of the highest authority in the entire world under Pharaoh. And then he saves the world. He saves the world by saving them from famine. All the surrounding nations would have experienced enormous, enormous decimating loss on account of the famine. But Joseph saves them because the kingdom of God does that. It changes nations. And here's a picture for us of how the church, I don't care how small the church is. The church is small in France at the moment, but we're going to see that turn around. This church is small in London, but we're going to see an influence far beyond, far beyond. I can say with absolute confidence that this church is going to touch the nations. I know it because some of us are from the nations. Now look, there's one more thing I want to say to you before I close. It all starts with a seed. When Jesus uses a picture of a seed, sometimes, as we found in the previous parables, he's talking about the Word of God, the Word of God sowed on the field. Sometimes he's talking about people. uh, In the previous parable of the weeds, he's talking about people being the seeds in the field and growing up. But I think when he's talking about the seed here in this parable, he's talking about himself. And the reason I say that is because in John 12, when Jesus is predicting his own death, he he depicts himself in terms of a seed. He says the reason he has to die is that otherwise there won't be fruit. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is kind of veiled language for his death, resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So when Jesus is talking here about the grain of mustard, the one seed that brings about a tree, I think he's talking about himself. And I think he's talking about the paradox of Christianity that even though it's small and it's weak and it's put in the ground, as it were, to die, it's in that obscurity that that is where its greatest power is unleashed. And Christ, for us, was killed on the cross. He was killed to be punished for our sin. He was killed so that you and I could be reconciled to God and in dying there on the cross he unleashed a tidal wave of God's (laughs) grace and mercy and forgiveness for the nations. He was the seed put in the ground but the seed brings about life. He was the one who died but the life that came from him has now touched all of us. And this is of course personal and it's cosmic, and it's world-changing. And I just want to ask you, as we finish, what about you, first of all? Have you, have, you, have you come to know Christ and His power, and His power to save you, and His power to cleanse you, and His power to bring you into His kingdom? It's an open invitation for anyone. And going all the way back to where I began right at the start, when I talked about the fact that people come to London because they have ambition, that Christ, this, this parable depicts the ambition of Christ. I want to ask you, friends, if you, if you call yourself a friend of Christ, if you're a Christian, what are you ambitious for? What will you lay your life down for? What will you sacrifice for? Because I think that these parables are written for us to catch us up in the vision of what his kingdom was going to do and say, listen, whatever else you're pursuing, pursue this. Make this your life aim. Make this your ambition. Make this your goal.